0: In C.S. Lewis, Classic Chronicles of Narnia, there is a time in the story of Prince Caspian when Lucy finds herself back in Narnia after a long absence. And she's a couple of years older now, and she sees Aslan... Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus, and she says, Aslan, you are so much bigger now than the last time that I saw you. And Aslan responds and says, I actually have not changed, Lucy, but that's what happens that every year that you grow, you find me bigger. And you know what? That should be our story as well. That as we are growing in our relationship and our understanding and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we are growing as believers, our view of Jesus should be getting bigger. And our view of Jesus needs to get bigger because our problems are getting bigger, aren't they? Right? It's a crazy world that we're living in today, and I find it ironic that little kids, who for the most part have very little problems, I mean, they eat, they play, maybe they do a little bit of homework. Little kids, though, who have very few problems seem to have a big view of God. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, they want to pray about everything, right? Right? It doesn't matter if it's cold or cancer. It's like, we got to pray. You know, we got to talk to God. But we, bigger kids who have some colossal problems, oftentimes have a small view of God. At least that's what our actions indicate. Because I think if we're honest, for a lot of us, we view prayer as a last resort. That it's the thing that we turn to after we've tried everything else in our strength, in our power, to try to fix it and make it happen. But guys, we need to have a big view of God. We need to understand that we have a big God, and we need to understand that because we have big problems. Now, last week, we covered the opening verses of this epistle, verses 1-14, through 14, where Paul really focused on the impact of the gospel. And we talked last week about what the gospel is in verses 5 through 7 and then what the gospel does in verses 12 through 14. Well, tonight we're going to pick it up in verse 15 where Paul really wants to enlarge our view of Jesus. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. Or in all things, he may have the preeminence. Now, pause there and give me your attention. Now, last week I mentioned that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to combat a false teaching and heresy that was spreading through that part of the world at this particular time. And the the teaching was called Gnosticism. And I didn't really define that, but tonight I want to define what that teaching was. The very word for Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And the Gnostics viewed themselves as people in the know. The Gnostics considered themselves to be the spiritually elites. They believed that they were people of superior knowledge who could help, quote unquote, lesser Christians attain to a deeper spirituality. I don't know about you, but I can't stand people like that who come across in that way that they are the spiritually elite. Now, the Gnostics believed that matter or anything physical or anything that was created was actually evil and that only the spirit was good. And they reasoned, therefore, that God could not be involved in creation because God being perfect could not touch matter, which was intrinsically evil. Okay, this is what they taught. I want to read to you what uh, one of my favorite Bible commentators, R. Kent Hughes, said about this. I think he sums it up really well. He says, The Gnostics taught that the world came into being through a complicated surrogate process whereby God put forth thousands of emanations or lesser gods, each of which was a little more distant from him, so that finally there was an emanation or a little god so distant from God that it could touch matter and it created the worlds isn't that crazy this is what they believe this is what they taught and this is what people though were latching on and so the the reasoning was or led them to believe that Jesus Christ if he was really the son of God could not have taken on a human body he didn't come in the flesh because matter is evil Therefore, the Gnostics taught that Jesus was more like a ghost-like phantom, okay? This is what they taught. So to put that all together, the Gnostics believed that Christ was not the the creator, that the incarnation, Jesus coming into this world and becoming a man, was not real, and that Jesus wasn't enough. So Paul is going to combat this false heresy by telling us here exactly who Jesus is. And tonight what we want to see is five colossal truths that Paul mentions here about the deity of Christ. If you're taking notes, here's truth number one in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The word translated image in the Greek is icon from which we derive our English word icon from, but it means the exact image or the exact representation. It conveys the idea that Jesus was the absolute and accurate image of God. And Paul is wanting us to know that Jesus was the absolute and accurate accurate image of the invisible God because he was literally God in human flesh. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 1. He said, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I love the way Phillips translates this. He says, Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. Skip down to verse 19. Paul says, for it pleased the Father that in him, that being Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Now that statement was literally a slap in the face to those who were teaching the Gnostic heresy. And here's why. The word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. And it was a technical term in the vocabulary of the Gnostic false teachers themselves. They used it to mean the sum total of all the divine power and attributes that were emanating from God. Paul uses it, though, to show that Jesus isn't a lesser emanation of God, but he is the fullness of God that he is God, that he is the sum total of who God is, that all the fullness of who God is dwelt in Jesus. And the word dwell is also equally important because it means, I love this, to be at home permanently. So Paul is saying that the fullness of God was permanently at home in Jesus. Simply stated, Jesus is And was and will always be God. So if you want to know what God is like, look to, study on, lean into, read up on, spend time with Jesus, and you come to discover what God is like reminds me of a story of a little girl who was drawing a picture one day, and her dad came up and saw her drawing, and he says, Hey, honey, what what are you drawing? And she goes, I'm drawing a picture of God. And dad said, Well, the Bible says that no one knows what God looks like. And she said, They will when I'm done. (laughs) Well, Paul says, I don't have a drawing to show you of what God looks like, but I can tell you what God is like. I can tell you what his, his heart is like and his character and what's important to him. Just look at Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, that he who has seen me has seen the Father. You could put it this way, that Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus was God with skin on. Now, what's interesting is the modern day heretics say, wait, 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 wait a second. It seems like the very next sentence that Paul mentions in verse 15 contradicts this idea. Because notice what it says next. It says that he is the firstborn over all creation. And so they argue and say, doesn't that seem to indicate that Jesus was created by God? So how can he then be God? In actuality. That statement is the next colossal statement that Paul makes here about Jesus. Number two, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, your Jehovah Witness friends will use this verse, and other cults like to use this verse, to erroneously say that Jesus was the firstborn, so he was created, and he is therefore not eternal. But it's important that you understand And note the Greek word here for firstborn. It's prototokos in the Greek, and it's a word that is not referring to, don't miss this, first in chronology. But it's a word, this word prototokos speaks of being first in priority in the same way that we read in psalm 89 verse 27 that solomon was the firstborn of david now if you know the story of david you know that um, solomon was not uh, he had a lot of older brothers he wasn't the firstborn son of david but when it makes that statement about him what it's saying is that solomon of all david's sons was the most prominent He was the one that God chose to be the successor to the throne. We use the same idea today. We say of Jill Biden that she is the first lady. Now, obviously, she's not the first lady that has ever uh, existed, but she is in a place of prominence as the wife of the president of the United States. To say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation is saying that he holds a position of preeminence over all creation. In fact, here's what's interesting. If Paul wanted to say that he was the first created being, there's another word that he would have used for firstborn. It is the word prototism. That's what it is. Prototistos. And it means the first one created, like the original, you know, model, if you would. But he doesn't use that word. He uses this word prototokos, which means first in priority or preeminence. Paul is saying that Jesus is first in rank and first in honor. And here's why. He wasn't created, he's actually the creator. And this leads us to the third colossal statement that Paul makes here about Jesus in verse 16. He says that he is the creator of all things. Now again, the false teaching of Gnosticism that was circulating through the city of Colossae said that all matter was evil. And since the world was evil, God could not have created it. So he had this, you know, far off emanation, this lesser God that created it. Well, rather than picking up on, on that idea and, and arguing this, you know, this, like, Paul's like, that that's ludicrous. What, what does Paul do? He just speaks the truth. He says, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that God created, he spoke this world into existence. He created this world out of nothing. There was nothing, and God spoke, and the universe came into existence. And Paul is telling us here that the one who spoke it into existence was Jesus himself. The Apostle John tells us the same thing. In John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. But I want you to notice, he says all things, Paul says all things were created by him, but also for him. And that's an astounding statement. Because you see, the Greek philosophers taught that everything needed a primary cause, which is the plan, an instrumental cause, which is the power, and the final cause, which is the purpose. Well, this is exactly what Paul's telling us. When it comes to creation, Jesus is the primary cause. He planned it. He's the instrumental cause that he produced it. And he's the final cause that it was made for his own pleasure. But this is what drives men and women crazy. This is what drives people that, that you work with and go to school with and live with live by. Is the fact that they were created for something other than their own pleasure pleasure they don't want to hear that this is one of the reasons why people love evolution not because it makes sense it doesn't not because it's scientific it's not not because there's evidence for it in fact the evidence is contrary to it the evidence speaks that that the design speaks of a designer In the same way that if I were to say, if someone asked, hey, Rob, where'd that pulpit come from? It's kind of cool. I said, you know what? We just threw a bunch of stuff into a box, threw a firecracker in it, it blew up, and this is what came out. (laughs) You're like, yeah, right, you know? No, the design speaks of a designer. And our planet, our world, is way more complicated and intricate than this. It doesn't make any sense to say that it just happened. But the reason why people embrace evolution is because evolution allows men and women to be their own gods. And it means that they don't have to answer to anybody. But creation, on the other hand, says that all of us have been made by God and for God, and that means there's an authority that we're all going to answer to. People don't want to hear that. But you know, when a person, a person will never ever find their true happiness, they'll never ever find their true purpose until they come to realize that they were created by God and for God. That we exist, church. You exist to bring God pleasure. Now, what Paul says next is absolutely astounding because he says, not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but he is the sustainer of all things. Notice verse 17 says, he he is before all things and by him all things consist. And the, The English Standard Version puts it this way. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. Jesus is holding it together. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says he's upholding all things by the word of his power. I love that. He spoke this world into existence, and by the word of his power, it's being held together. Now, think about this. The sun is 93 million miles from planet Earth. The light that illuminates our days takes about eight minutes to reach us from the sun Traveling at 186,000 miles per second. What if the sun were closer? Well, on Venus, the next closest planet to the sun, the surface temperature is about 875 degrees. In other words, we would fry. What if the sun were further away? Well, on Mars, the furthest planet from the sun, the Mercury dips to about 200, minus 200 degrees. It's really, really cold. Can you imagine what would happen to our planet? What would happen if Jesus relinquished his sustaining power over the laws of the universe? If he just suspended the law of gravity just for a couple of minutes, can you imagine what would happen? We'd all go flying off into space. That's what would happen. There would be instant destruction on earth even if the rotation of the planet slowed down for just a little bit our globe is tilted at an exact angle of 23 degrees providing us with the four seasons except here in california but um we don't get the four seasons here we get summer and winter that's about it right But if it were not tilted, the vapors from the ocean would move north and south and develop into these monstrous continents of ice. Did you know that the moon is also positioned strategically for our sakes? If it were a little closer, Miami would be underwater 12 hours each day. And due to the moon's increased gravitational pull on the Atlantic, it would be underwater for those 12 hours. And, and when the tide came in, it would rush in like a tidal wave. It would be like every single day in Miami, a tsunami. Instead of people hanging on on the beach, they'd be like as far inland as they could get because every single day would be a tsunami. But Jesus is holding it all together. Now, the Greek philosophers said, and you've seen the pictures, that the world is held together by the great God Atlas on his back, and he's straining, you know, to hold it together. Paul says, no, no, no. It's being held by Jesus, by the word of his power. And he's not straining. His muscles aren't tired. And some of you need to hear this tonight. This is God's word, word of the Lord for you tonight, because storms blow into our lives. And a lot of times, and maybe some of you are going through this right now, is it seems like things are getting all out of whack. You need to know that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That means Jesus can hold your life together. I had something really weird, interesting. I'll, I'll use that word, interesting, happened today. I got a text from a friend. It was a picture. He said, Pastor yes, Rob, I saw this today, and I thought of you. And it was a, the back of a car window, and it had a sticker on it that said, Jesus says, I got this. Yeah, that's cool. Well, on my way to church today, I happened to drive right behind that car. <laughs> So I'm like, going, okay, I don't think I'm like stressed out about something or anything, but I think you're trying to tell me, Lord, that you've got what something, or maybe that's a word for some of you tonight. That's what I'm telling you, that Jesus say, I got this. I'm upholding all things by the word of my power. Your marriage that may be falling apart, he can hold it together. It's not force. He doesn't force us, but it's two people. We learned about this last night, submitting to one another, submitting to the word of God. He's able to hold together my emotions and my family and my instability. And sometimes I can forget this and I get all stressed out. That's why Paul would say in Philippians, don't be worried and anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. Why? Because Jesus says, I got this, right? Give it to me. So Paul makes these four colossal statements about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. One more, he he says that he's the head of the church in verse 18. Now, the Gnostics taught that Jesus was simply this emanation from God, this this angel who served the church. But Paul combats that not by tackling the heresy head on, but he makes another colossal statement about Jesus when he says, when it comes to the church, Jesus is the head. He's in charge of this thing, the church. And it's interesting, the the church is described as many different things in the Bible. It's called the vineyard, it's called the flock, it's referred to as the building of God made of living stones, the people that make up it. But my favorite is what Paul mentions here, that the church is a body and that Jesus is the head. And you see, a body can't function very long, can't function at all without the head. The head coordinates, it controls. It's the head that gives direction. I lived in Oregon. Sometimes in Oregon, when we'd be at somebody's farm and they were, they were going to you know, cook a chicken, they'd take this chicken and they'd cut its head off. You know what a chicken does when its head gets cut off? It runs around. It's nervous energy. That's, it's, it looks crazy. That's what we can look like sometimes. When we get detached from Jesus, our head, we can be running around like crazy people and people are looking at us going, what is wrong with him? We're detached from our head, from Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And what Paul says next in verse 18 tells us the reason why. He says because he's the firstborn from the dead. He's speaking here of his resurrection because he rose again. Now, once again, the term firstborn here isn't speaking of first in chronology. There were other people who had been risen from the dead. Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. He brought the widow of Nain's son back from the dead. In the Old Testament, Elijah brought a widow's son back from the dead. So Jesus wasn't the first person ever to rise again from the dead. He wasn't first in chronology, but he was first in importance. And here's why. Don't miss this. All those other people that were brought back by God from the dead died again. Jesus is the first to ever rise again from the dead, never to die again. And that's what qualifies him to be the head of the church. And that's why everything that we believe, guys, is based on the resurrection of Christ. That's the center point of our faith. Now, Paul tells us how he became the head of the church. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father... That in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, and by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Paul's saying, "Look, here's the problem: sin, the sin of man, ruined what God created, and caused mankind that was made by God and for God." And, and to live in a relationship with God, our sin caused us to be alienated from God, but Jesus came to reconcile us back to God. And reconciliation is the removal of the hostility, it's the restoring of friendly relationships between two parties that have been at war. And Paul describes this reconciliation as making peace through his blood. You know, we talk about atonement. In the Old Testament, atonement was a covering for their sin. But in the New Testament, you can remember the word atonement to mean at-one-ment. That's reconciliation. We were far off, we were alienated, and through the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection, we are brought into this place of being made at one with God. And Paul wants us to understand just how far off we were, though prior to the work of Christ on the cross. So verse 21, he says this, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now notice this. Paul tells us that we were once God's enemies in two ways. We were enemies, he says, in our minds, Meaning our thoughts and attitudes were hostile to God. Before we trusted Christ, our entire way of thinking was contrary to God's way of thinking. And, and, and for, for us and those who have yet to be reconciled, the problem was really simple. It was this. We refused to accept God's evaluation of us. That we were sinners. Right? We're like, no, 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 I'm a good person. How many of you meet that? Hey, are you going to heaven? Oh, yeah, how come? I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. That's not Jesus. That's Santa Claus, okay? That's what we think. People think that. And we would not accept God's remedy for our situation of being dependent on the work of Christ. No, no, no. How am I going to get to heaven? I'm going I'm to earn it. I'm going to do all these rituals and all these different things. So we, in our minds, we were enemies, but also in our deeds. That's second because of our evil behavior. It's not just what we thought, but it's also how we acted. Despite our active opposition to God, he reconciled us through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, it's been said, died for a race of rebels to offer them a chance to become his allies. I love that. The outcome of this reconciliation is twofold. Present peace... Peace with God now and future presentation of ourselves before God. In the present, the state of sin has been wiped clean. And we look forward to the day when we will stand before God. This is future. And Jesus, Paul says, will present you as being holy and blameless. That means free of accusation and above reproach in his sight. So Paul has presented this wonderful picture of Jesus. And these five colossal statements that he makes, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn over all creation, that he is the creator of all things, that he is the sustainer of all things, that he is the head of the church, and he's the one who has reconciled us to God. And as we wrap this up tonight, it's very important that we don't misunderstand what Paul says in verse 23. Notice he says, if indeed, You continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if you're taking notes, the if there in verse 23 is often misunderstood. The verse is not saying that we will be presented holy and blameless if we remain faithful as if our eternal salvation depends upon our performance. That's not what Paul's saying here. The Greek construction of the if is not an expression of doubt, but it's really an expression of confidence. And this is Paul's whole point. He's telling us how great Jesus is. And so the if here should really be translated since. 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 In other words, it does not mean that something shall be if something else is true. But rather, it means that something was if something else is true. In other words, this is the truth. We have been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul said this, Don't you know that God has given you his very best in his son? Don't you know he's going to freely give you all things? In other words, it's saying like, Look, God, he saved you. He's, he's, not gonna, he, he's not like, okay, I saved you. Now you do your part. I hope you make it. No. Paul's saying, look, that Jesus is so committed to us. His point is that we have been reconciled, that it's an accomplished fact. And so if you are a child of God today, you will continue being grounded and settled in your faith and you're not going to move away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. In fact that phrase in verse 23 and I'm going to end with this, moved away. I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this. It'll be on the screen. He says Paul used an architectural image in this verse. A house firmly set on the foundation The town Colossae was located in a region known for earthquakes, and the word translated moved away can mean earthquake stricken. Paul was saying if you are truly saved and built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. You have heard the gospel and trusted Jesus, and he has saved you. In other words, we are not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith, thus proving that we are saved. And I think the heart of what Paul is saying here really lines up with what Jude said, The same type of celebrative heart when Jude said this, Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture that we have tonight that Paul has laid out for us here in this passage. And Lord, I pray as, as we get into our circle groups now to discuss this and talk, Lord, I pray that you would use us in each other's lives to stir each other up, to encourage one another in the faith. And I pray that this evening we would all leave here with a greater and bigger view of Jesus. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.